Well, hello. Welcome to Fountain Springs Church. My name is Nicholas. Uh, wherever you're joining us from, uh, online or at our east location, I'm just so excited to have the opportunity to share with you today. And we want to pause here at the beginning to recognize that this week is Mother's Day, and we want to give a special note to all the mothers. Uh, I'm married to Tiffany Hecht, and uh, we have a five-year-old daughter uh, named Genevieve. And um, Tiffany and I often joke about how I am Genevieve's favorite parent because we play a lot of silly games together and we do a lot of fun stuff and we have like our own words and our own songs and uh, all of these little inside jokes. Um, but when Genevieve has a bad dream in the middle of the night, guess whose name she calls? Um, it's not mine. So, uh, so, so moms, thank you that in a world that uh, is at times too full of bad dreams, you are the ones that we get to run to uh, for comfort, and uh, we love you. So, all right. We are in part five, I think, of our series, High Fidelity, a conversation about what Christians believe, and we have been talking about the Apostles' Creed. Um, the Apostles' Creed was written sort of out of a couple different creeds that were, that were put together at a couple different church councils sometime around the late 300, early 1400s, and it's short, on purpose. The goal of the Apostles' Creed is that it's something that could be remembered quite easily, maybe even memorized, and the goal is that it would help us remain faithful to the teachings of Christianity. What exactly do Christians believe? And for many of the people in the early church, they were just now figuring all of these things out. Just a few hundred years after uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the people were trying to decide, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? What does it mean for there to be a trinity? What does it mean for the Bible to be the written word of God? And so they wrote all of these things down uh, in the hopes uh, that they would uh, be, be short enough to be remembered so that they could travel well. Again, the goal was to define the beliefs and then teach the beliefs and then hope that the beliefs would be handed down to the next generation. And I think... Um, by all estimates, you could say it was quite successful at the time. So uh, today we're going to look at this week's section in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and it is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's brief, isn't it? Uh, but I think you're going to find uh, that uh, it's, it, it's somewhat earth-shattering when we understand what it means to place our belief in the Holy Spirit. Um, if you notice, each member of the Trinity is sort of addressed throughout the Apostles' Creed. We begin by saying, I believe in God the Father, and then somewhere in the middle we say, and I believe in Jesus Christ his Son, and then here at the end we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And the conversation about the Trinity is another sermon for another day, uh, but just know that we do believe in a, in a triune God, three equal parts, one God, uh, three parts, and the Holy Spirit is the third. But we, we sometimes seem to uh, have less clarity about the Holy Spirit then the other two parts of God. What exactly is the Holy Spirit? When did the Holy Spirit arrive? Is the Holy Spirit here now? Is it in this room? Is it in you? And my goal today is that we could answer some of those questions for you. But by, uh, to do that, I'm going to need to just sort of pick up the story right at the moment that Jesus is dying on the cross. And then we're going to work forward from there, okay? So this is from Matthew chapter 27, verses uh, 50 through 53. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. 
Now, at the death of Jesus, a bunch of odd and unusual things happen. Among other things, the temple curtain tears from top to bottom. Now, the other things are, are sort of, uh, no, go back. The other things are sort of impressive. Come back to that, that verse slide, please. Um, the other things are sort of impressive, right? Tombs breaking open, dead bodies walking around. That's pretty impressive. But why include a detail like the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom? Uh, there's a Franciscan archaeologist named Bargel Pixner who spent most of, his, most of his life in Jerusalem. And uh, he suggested that it's possible this temple curtain would have even been sewn by Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her sister, her cousin Elizabeth, because their tribe of Israel was responsible for maintaining the temple curtain. The temple curtain was this division between the holy place of the temple and the most holy place, where God resided on the other side, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Uh, allegedly, if you've seen Indiana Jones, inside the Ark of the Covenant were uh, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, but it represented the presence of God. So why, rhetorically, why does the, the temple curtain tear? Well, to answer that question, I think we have to consider some of the insults that are thrown at Jesus while he's dying on a cross. If you can remember them, there are some people passing by, we're told, and they're shouting things like, you said you would destroy the temple and raise it again, but you can't even save yourself. See, in the Jewish world and in the first century, uh, first century the value of the temple can't be overstated. It was absolutely central to Jewish life. I mean, it was, it was the place of worship. It was believed to be the place of the presence and the glory and the spirit of God. But it was also where people banked. It was where they socialized. Everything happened through the temple. And any suggestion that he was going to destroy the temple was quite dangerous. Now we can go to this slide. Solomon would actually build this temple. And then it would have, uh, have a number of different episodes where walls were torn down. And in the first century, Herod the Great would rebuild, expand, and renovate Solomon's temple. In fact, uh, if you know much about Herod the Great, he wasn't beloved by Jewish people. He was a bit of a murderer, a bit of a psychopath, and he was doing anything he could to win their favor. So he rebuilt a temple, he covered it with gold, and he expanded the Temple Mount. In fact, the mountain that it's on wasn't quite big enough for his, his, his design, and so he had to build like these four large retaining walls all the way around it to support the Temple Mount, to support millions of people who would be coming to the temple to celebrate the Jewish feasts. It's an enormous renovation. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus, who tells us almost everything we know about the first century, said that in the common language for common people, they simply referred to the temple as the house. It was the house of God. We sometimes talk about churches like this today. In fact, in Hebrew, I think the word is Beit, and in Greek, it is the word oikos, uh, weird name for a yogurt, right? Uh, but it actually means house or dwelling. And uh, these are the words that are used for the temple in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is the house of God. But Herod didn't rebuild the temple out of religious passion. And he didn't only do it to win Jews over. He primarily did it uh, motivated by greed because the more people that he could get to come to the festivals, the more temple tax he could collect, the more money he could make from like the exchange of foreign currency, the more temple offerings he could sell uh, to people. So more than anything, this became a money-making machine. Uh, go ahead and pop to that next slide. I want to give you guys a couple different angles of this. Uh, go to the next one. Here you can see um, on the southern side of the temple, 
Herod built the southern stairs. Is there one more picture that kind of closes up, uh, zooms in on that? He built the southern stairs, and these are by far the largest entrance into the Temple Mount. They're 200 feet uh, wide, uh, and they would accommodate thousands of people who were coming and going daily. And during the feast, they would accommodate hundreds of thousands of people who would be coming in and out of the temple to offer their sacrifices and to worship, um, worship God. Now, there were three primary feasts in the Jewish calendar. Uh, most of them will be familiar to you. There was the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. This happens around the time of Christmas. And then there was the Feast of Passover or Pesach, and this happens around the time of Easter. And then there's the Feast of Pentecost, which we'll come back to in just a, a minute, but it's a handful of weeks after Easter. At the bottom of the stairs, there would have been a large plaza where enormous crowds could gather, especially in uh, times of feasts. And then uh, these were sort of unique stairs. Uh, they actually varied in height and depth. In fact, on one end, there were 30 stairs to the top. And on the other end, there were 27. And the idea was you couldn't rush into the presence of God. You had to be careful about how you were approaching the presence of God, or you'd trip and you'd stumble and you'd fall. You had to enter the temple of the Lord with like attention and with respect and with focus. Otherwise, you were going to hurt yourself. These stairs also came to be known as the stairs of the rabbis. And perhaps you can understand why. If you were a rabbi who were trying to teach people about your particular interpretation of the Torah or the biblical text, or maybe you were trying to call followers, like what better uh, marketplace, what better opportunity would you have than to stand on these stairs and shout at the top of your lungs in front of hundreds of thousands of people potentially gaining, um, potentially gaining followers? Next slide. Now, the, the stairs of the rabbis actually face a section of Jerusalem called David City. It's the old city. It's beautiful, large buildings, not a lot of residential buildings. But it was also the area of town that any time one of these feasts was happening, and you had these like big parades and people playing music and blowing shofars and uh, marching and dancing and singing their way into the temple, it would move through David City right before it reached these steps. And this was the main processional entrance for the pilgrims who were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, including the Feast of Pentecost. Now, uh, I said earlier, uh, it's the Feast of Pentecost, also called Shavuot. Pentecost means uh, Penta 50. Uh, I don't think that's a Starbucks size just yet, but they might get desperate soon. Uh, I don't know about their business model these days. Um, but Penta means 50, and uh, cost means days, so it's 50 days. Shavuot means seven weeks. And so the idea here is when God liberates the Jewish people from Egypt at Passover, they leave Pharaoh, and it takes them seven weeks to, to arrive at Mount Sinai, where God is going to give them the Ten Commandments. So uh, Passover celebrates the uh, deliverance from Egypt. Pentecost celebrates the giving of God's law, the giving of the Ten Commandments to his people. But it also celebrates the harvest. It, uh, most of these feasts have like agricultural implications, and it also it's the time of the year when the people are reaping the harvest from their fields. And so part of what they would do is um, uh, acknowledge that God has provided once again. They would celebrate the harvest, celebrate God's uh, provision. Okay, back to the story. Uh, after Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven, his disciples are sort of left uncertain of what is next. He's promised them that a comforter is coming, that someone is coming, uh, but they're not quite sure 
what to do next. And we read about this in Luke chapter 24. Jesus ascends into heaven and it says, Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Next slide. Where are the disciples? They are at the temple, praising God. They returned to Jerusalem and they stayed at the temple, praising God. This is important. Because Jesus has not come to destroy Judaism, but to fulfill it, right? So these are good, observant Jews. They just happen to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They go back to the temple, and every day they enter the temple, and they worship God at the temple. It's important to keep this in mind also. Because, uh, once again, where are the disciples? They're at the temple. That is so enthusiastic. Great. Uh, The disciples are at the temple. And then 10 days later, 10 days later after the ascension, The story picks up in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Let's go there. When the day of Pentecost came, remember this is 50 days after Passover. When the day of Pentecost came, they, the disciples, and here we're not talking about the 11. We're talking about everybody that acknowledges Jesus as the Savior of the world, Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, Jewish historians like uh, David Biven, Brad Young, uh, this might blow your mind, but they estimate that number to be somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people in Jerusalem believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So if you're thinking this is uh, everybody minus Judas, uh, that may not be accurate. It's probably more like the, the number of people who had started to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now often uh, when we teach this verse, we understand the house where they were sitting to mean something like, this is mostly because of the Catholic tradition, um, but, but we, we believe it to be something like an upstairs back room in an apartment, handful of people are sitting around and the spirit comes in and moves. And I think you're going to see to the rest of the reading of this story, that that's absolutely impossible. And I want to suggest that the house that's being alluded to here is the temple of God. It's the place of God. That the the disciples are gathered at the place of God, probably on the southern stairs, and this mighty wind begins uh, to blow. A violent wind came from heaven. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, Uh, Read that again. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation. So again, you have this enormous number of followers of Jesus who have just been filled with the Holy Spirit and around them are a number of Jews from other nations. Why? Because they're in town to celebrate the Pentecost, right? It's one of the three major feasts. There's a number of Jews from other nations going on. When they heard this sound, the other people, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard in their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Next slide. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Romans, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Classic, right? I was just drunk. So even more, Jews from every nation have gathered together. 
And uh, sometimes this is confused as uh, a commentary on prayer language, but that's not what's happening very clearly. They're not hearing some like secret heavenly prayer language. They're hearing the language of their native tongue. Something is happening and the spirit of God is moving in a powerful way. And then Peter begins to teach them. In Acts 2.15, he responds to the allegations of drunkenness and he says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. (laughs) I had an uncle who used to say, uh, you can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning. Uh, And maybe that's what they were trying to do. Um, But Peter says, they're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m., which happens to be the time of morning prayer in the temple on the day of one of the three major feasts. So I'll ask you again, where are good, observant, Jewish uh, followers of Jesus on one of the three major feasts at the time of morning prayer? They're at the temple praying to God when this like violent wind moves through the building and pours out the Holy Spirit. Peter starts teaching about a prophecy from the book of Joel where God tells that one day he's going to pour his spirit out on all of the people. And then Peter extends an invitation and he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And Acts 2 tells us that 3,000 people responded to the invitation that day and were baptized. The Southern Stairs are actually adjacent to, right next to, the largest group of mikvahs in all of Israel. Now, a mikvah is something like a natural water well, like a hot spring. Ever heard of one of those? Uh, It's something like uh, natural moving water that's in the ground. And there are like hundreds of them near the Mount of Olives, between the Mount of Olives and David City. Where else could 3,000 people have been baptized? They're nowhere near the Jordan River. But in this moment, the Holy Spirit is poured out, 3,000 people respond and are baptized. The Southern Stairs very well may be where the birth of Christianity began. Remember as Jesus came out of the Jordan River and he was baptized by John the Baptist, uh, we're told that the Spirit of God descended like a dove on him and there was this sense that everything changed for him then. He left that place, went into the wilderness to be tempted, came back, called followers, began teaching, performing miracles. His ministry began at that moment and in the same way, With the early church, something similar is happening here. The Spirit of God has now shown up and baptized the people, moving in the people, and this is going to change absolutely everything. The Spirit of God, I say this all the time, right? The people of God in the place of God, in the presence of God. God is there, in them. A couple other notes about the Feast of Pentecost. I mentioned earlier, it's to celebrate the giving of the Ten Commandments. And what the people would do is they would actually take two loaves of bread to offer as a sacrifice. Each loaf represented one of the tablets. And they would offer it as a sacrifice out of what they had uh, to God. Again, thanking God for his blessings and uh, for the harvest. But they would also reread, or I suppose read, (laughs) uh, Exodus 19 and tell the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 19, go home and read it later. I don't have time to do it now. But it's a scene that is strikingly similar to what's happening in Acts chapter 2. The people of God have come to a mountain. And the mountain begins to shake. 
and a violent wind begins to blow. And there's the sound of thunder, which can also be translated like the sound of voices from atop the mountain. In fact, the rabbinic tradition was that when God gave the Ten Commandments, he gave it in 70 languages. You know what the number seven means, right? It's like all of it. So in, in a sense, like he gave it in all of the languages so that everybody would be able to understand. And then here in Acts 2, there's a sense that here are all of these languages understanding that though the mountain shook when God gave his word, here God is giving his spirit. Moses comes down from the mountain, and what does he find the people doing? Worshiping a golden calf, right? Uh, they made it a, a symbol of the God that they're worshiping. And he's upset about this. So he calls together the Levites, who are the pastors at the time, and he tells them to grab their swords, and he says, I want you to find everybody who bowed to that calf and I want you to kill them. And we're told that that day, anyone know how many Israelites were struck down? 3,000. 3,000 Israelites were killed that day. So Pentecost, in the Jewish mind up until now, would have been remembering the day that 3,000 people died for their unbelief. And now, approximately 1,200 years later, on the same day, on a different mountain, the presence of God once again comes in a new form. The Holy Spirit shows up, and 3,000 people aren't killed. 3,000 people are raised to life. Can you see like the, like the poetic imagery here? Remember Paul's teaching in Romans 8 when he says, uh, hey, the law leads to death, but the Spirit leads to life? There is a transition happening in the way that people follow God here. So then back to where we started. Why did the temple curtain tear? Was it to let us inside that most holy place? You know, the place where like the high priest could only go once a year, like in the presence of God. Was it so that like the rest of us could have that privilege? Temple rips, we all get to go in. Or did the curtain tear so that the spirit of God could be released into the world, loosed to now move its um, presence into the hearts of people? The book of Acts says the presence of God is no longer in temples, but now it's in hearts. Again, fulfilling a prophecy written in Jeremiah about one day God would establish a covenant with his people where he would write on their hearts. The spirit of God is transferred to a new building, to our bodies. And so then maybe, you, uh, maybe your parents said this to you when you were a kid. Uh, they brought up that question that Paul asked when he says, hey, don't you know that your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You want to go back, please? Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And I was always taught that what that meant is like, this is why you can't get your ears pierced, or this is why you can't get tattoos. Your body, your physical body is like a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't eat Big Macs, that kind of stuff, right? Like, take care of yourself. But that's not what Paul's saying. What he's saying is, don't you know that like the spirit of the living God is, is like living and moving and has its being inside of your body? You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The God of the universe lives in you. And so it matters the decisions that you make. It does matter if you get your ears pierced, but not because of some purity code, because everything matters. The spirit of God lives inside of you. And so it matters if you stay addicted, and it matters if you stay in dysfunctional relationships, and it matters if you grieve too long, and it matters if you're mad at God. It all matters because you are the dwelling of the spirit of God. It's as if Paul is saying, don't you know who you are? You are not just a person. 
You are not just matter. You are not just like uh, cells. You are the living temple of the God of the universe. And that comes with some responsibility. This is at least in part what it means to say something like, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's to believe that the God of the universe, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, is living inside of you, should you choose to accept his invitation. Pentecost is the event where the promised Holy Spirit arrives. And oddly enough, it's relatively unmentioned in churches. Christmas has Santa. Easter has... Easter has who? Easter has a bunny. Does anyone even know when Pentecost Sunday is? It's two weeks from this week, just so you know. May 23rd. We don't even talk about it, right? And yet this is the moment that, like, without it, we wouldn't be here doing this. You wouldn't have the Spirit of God inside of you. The arrival of the promised Holy Spirit changes everything. One more thing uh, to wrap up. I just want to look at how this story ends because I think it's important. Beyond the fact that we happen to have the Spirit inside of you, what good is this for the world? Is it good for the world? The book of Leviticus chapter 19 says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Uh, this is one of the earliest, I think it's like the second mention, uh, direct mention of giving a tithe or an offering to God in the biblical text. And the idea here is, uh, if I can do this, it's not a magic trick. Um, but uh, you have a field, right? You have a field. Here was the idea. Here was the idea in ancient Israel. You have a field. When you harvest it, just take a big circle out of the middle. Harvest the middle and leave the edges for the poor and for the foreigners. Leave the edges for other people to come and pick and make. Don't pick the grain and make their bread for them. Offer them charity with dignity. Give them an opportunity to serve themselves. But this instruction, Leviticus 19, is given uh, in relation to the time of Pentecost, the time of harvest. At this time, serve the poor around you. Take God's blessing and use it for the sake of others in the world. And God says, here's how you can show me that you're thankful, by allowing my blessing to pass through you. And then fast forward 1,200 years, and at the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the measure of the presence of God in your life is the same. How is the Spirit of God allowing you to serve other people around you? Um, it is, in my lifetime, it has never been more popular and, like, more possible to be a person who rails endlessly about social justice, about serving other people, sharing things on social media, uh, speaking on behalf of the oppressed, speaking out against injustice, it has never been easier to announce to everyone around you that you care about those issues, all the while doing nothing at all yourself. It has been my experience here and in other places I've lived, it has been my experience that the people who are usually most vocal about those things, who are always quick to talk about how important it is to stand on behalf of the oppressed, always quick to point out to others how they're not standing out on behalf of the oppressed, it has always been my experience, and I mean without exception, that those people are doing nothing. And I mean nothing. Moral superiority has never been more out of control than it is today. It is so easy to look like you are something that you are not. 
But the test of the Holy Spirit has not changed. Evidence is evidence. To what degree is the Spirit of God moving through you for the sake of others? You can't fake it. Not with God. So let's look how this story ends. After the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That's cool. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's not only a command that should be obeyed, it actually happens to work. If you stop talking about things and start doing things, it actually, historically, biblically, turns out to be wildly productive. So the question I'll leave you with is this. What do I have that you need? A question for you to ask. What do you have that others need? What do I have that people around me might need? That's a question I have to ask myself if the Spirit is alive in me. Notice what the question is not. The question isn't, what do others have that you might need? That's a much easier question to answer, isn't it? What do I have that you might need? How do I live out generously the evidence of the Spirit in my life? That's the challenge. That's the command that we're given. If God is in you, if you believe in the Holy Spirit, he wants to change the world through the presence of the Spirit in your life. Let's pray. God, we uh, are grateful for the presence of your Spirit and for the way that it gives us strength and it gives us courage to do even hard things. Help us resist the, the temptation to take shortcuts, to talk about things that we aren't actually about. And help us to be the kind of people who are about things that we don't talk about who are serving people without announcing it, who are sacrificing for others without anyone knowing about it. Help us to be the kind of people who close our mouths and put our hands to the task. And may we trust that this is the best strategy we have available. We pray this in your name. Amen.